You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Be back in the book of Mark this evening. A couple weeks ago, uh, I had the opportunity to go to a conference in Toronto. It was the Gospel Coalition Canada, first national conference. And the whole conference was centered around a study of the book of Mark, which is fantastic for me because I'm in the book of Mark. And so for the first message, I got to see all the things I did wrong. <laughs> the rest of the messages were kind of just selected passages throughout Mark. And so the great thing is for you, if, if at any point over the next few months, I say something that you're like, ah, oh, that was brilliant, that insight was amazing, you'll know it wasn't actually me. It was them. And there will be messages that they didn't touch on, and you'll be like, oh, what happened there? And that might be tonight, because they didn't cover this passage tonight. However, I think this story is a fantastic story. Here we have the story of Jesus healing a man whose hand is withered. It, it really doesn't seem like a big deal. It's, it's not like this guy even was fully paralyzed. He just His hand didn't work like it was supposed to. And yet, this becomes a central story that that Mark uses. In fact, there are five stories of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And this is the fifth one. And it acts almost like the climactic story in this group of five. Uh, There are so many different enemies that Jesus could have had. You ever think about that? Well, Jesus is walking the earth. There's so many people that could have hated him. There's so many sinners out there. The Gentiles, the leadership of, of Rome. And yet his primary enemies throughout his ministry were the religious leaders. And not just the religious leaders like, I know the, San, the Sanhedrin is spoken about. I know the Sadducees are mentioned a couple times. But their primary enemy is the Pharisees. They're the ones that crop up most often in opposition to Jesus, and they're the ones that were so concerned about the keeping of the law of the Old Testament. They really are the ones that we would least expect to be enemies of Christ. The ones studying the Old Testament, looking forward to the prophecies being fulfilled, and knowing God's law inside and out. They're the ones that become the greatest enemies of our Savior. How does that happen? Why is that? What did Jesus do that was so offensive to them? Well, I think in our story this evening, we get a little bit of an answer to that question. Uh, In any good story, there is a context, a conflict, a climax, and then a conclusion. If we were to zoom out tonight and look at the gospel story as a whole, we would find that this story offers kind of the beginning of the conflict, or or to set up what the conflict is that ultimately leads to the climax of the cross and the resurrection. But if we look in at this group of five stories, I think this story here offers that that climactic story, that climactic event that is the, the, the opposition between Jesus and the Pharisees at its height, and then offers some kind of conclusion to that that kind of alters the course, the rest of Jesus' ministry and the rest of the course of the Pharisees' lives as well. And so hopefully tonight we'll see what I'm talking about. Each of these stories, we see a wonderful attribute of our Savior. 
We see Jesus claiming deity by forgiving sin and healing the paralytic. That's story number one. And Jesus is clearly claiming that he is God, and the Pharisees knew that, and so they were upset. We see Jesus earns the title of friend of sinners when he goes to Levi's house for lunch. That he goes to his house for a party, that he invites Levi to be a disciple, and that he calls other sinners to himself. He is a friend of sinners. Pharisees did not like that. We saw that he was against religious expectations when he commanded his disciples not to fast. Though everybody else was, and it seemed like the holy thing to do, his disciples, it wasn't time for them to fast. Well, that made the Pharisees upset. And that's when he talked about new wine and old wineskins and, and how they just don't fit. You can't take the new relationship with Christ and fit it into the old legalistic system. It won't fit. It'll burst. Then we find the fourth story is Jesus defending his disciples as they pick and eat corn on the Sabbath day. And the point he's making there is that the law was not meant to be this, these handcuffs on people to, to hold them down and to hurt them. The Sabbath is there to give us a day of rest. It's a day of refreshment. It's a good day, something that, that we as human beings need. But it wasn't meant to become this bondage over them. And they were demanding, based on their human rules, this bondage over disciples where they couldn't even eat when they were hungry. He said, no, that's, that's not what it's about. And so once again, he's making the Pharisees upset. It's gotten so bad that they're following him around. That everywhere he goes, there is a contingent of Pharisees behind him, waiting to see what he's going to do wrong that they can accuse him of. And so that's kind of the context for the story in Mark chapter 3, that the Pharisees are following Jesus into uh, the synagogue, looking, hoping, praying that somehow Jesus will mess up and they can accuse him and, and prove that he is this fraud that they believe him to be. Jesus is kind of messing up their plans. He's going around doing nice things and being kind and being loving and being gracious and healing people. It's not really easy to accuse people when they're doing that, but they're going to find a way. You'll see it. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. The idea of a withered hand is just it was a paralyzed hand. It didn't work the way it was supposed to. And they watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. So, so the they that wants to accuse, we find later, is the Pharisees. The Pharisees have entered into the synagogue behind Jesus, and as Jesus is there to worship his Father, as he's there to take part in the Jewish Sabbath day with his, his brothers and, and sisters, his, his fellow Jews, they're there just to find a way to accuse him. Fifteen steps behind Jesus slither in the Pharisaical contingent who have been tasked with watching Jesus to find something wrong with him. And here we find a man with a withered hand. And we don't know if this man specifically came to Jesus or if he just happened to be there in the temple or in the synagogue with Jesus. But he's there to be healed. He's there to worship God. Verse number three. He saith unto the man that had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? 
And so you got to picture the scene that he, he asked this man that has a withered hand, stand forth. And it's literally stand in the midst or in the middle of them. Now, the way that a synagogue was structured is they had seats all around the outside facing in. So the stage was in the very center of the synagogue. And so he took this man and essentially brought him up on the stage in the middle of everyone and said, I want everybody to see this. Jesus is not doing this because he wants to put on some kind of show. He's not doing it because he's trying to get attention for himself. And he's not doing this because it's required in order for him to heal the man. He could have stood beside him and said, okay, you're good. And the man would have walked away and the Pharisees would have been no wiser. He is purposefully bringing this man to the center of the stage because he has a lesson to teach everyone there and because he has a lesson to teach us. So we've got to make sure we get this, get what he's trying to teach. He asked the Pharisees this question. Do you think it's lawful? Is it right? Is, is it, would God want us to do that which is right or that which is evil? Would he want us to save life or to kill. Now, this puts the Pharisees in a very difficult situation. And, and here, again, we see the brilliance of Christ. He really had a way of asking questions that stopped people in their tracks. And, and he, wasn't, he wasn't being unkind to them. You see that? Like, he, he's, not, he's not outright rebuking. I mean, later he got to that. But here, he's actually giving them a chance to answer and to think and to, to hear what he's trying to say and to learn the lesson with everybody. And so he asked this wonderful question. If they say it's to do good and save life, which is clearly the right answer, then they, they miss their opportunity to accuse him. Right? If they say it's to do evil and to kill, well, then they're just really bad. Like, they, they wouldn't outright say that. And so we kind of see this, this position. They have this desire to accuse Christ, and so they can't say it's good to do good. And then they also have this desire to put it on a show with everyone else. And so they can't say evil. What a predicament, right? It's really difficult to live in this sin that's against Christ and really be consistent. And so here they are. Verse number four. What do they do? But they held their peace. So, I mean, when you ask someone a question and they don't respond, it's really awkward, right? You've got to picture Jesus standing there in the middle of the synagogue with this man with the withered hand, and he says, is it right for me to do good or evil, to, kill, to save or to kill? He looks at the Pharisees, he's clearly asking them a question, and they just sit there. Stone face. They're not going to answer. Look at his response. When he had looked round about them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. I tell you, there's a part of the story, when I think of Jesus doing this, that I just love. I love the way that he's like, asking them this question, and they don't give an answer, and he knows exactly what position this is going to put him in in their eyes. But he looks at the man, and he says, put out your hand. And the, the great thing is, you know what the man couldn't do? The man had no ability to put out his hand. 
It was withered. It was paralyzed. He, He didn't have the ability to do any of what Jesus was commanding him to do. And yet Jesus says, put out your hand, and he does it. And so when Jesus commands something, even though it might seem impossible, he gives the power to do what he's commanded us to do. This is true in a lot of respects, right? In fact, one of the things that was said at the conference, I'm already using it, but it was this idea that if, if the work that we're planning to do for the kingdom of God is work we can accomplish on our own, we are not doing the work of the kingdom of God. In order for us to really be doing the work of God, we need to be attempting to do something that's impossible by ourselves. And so that's that faith in trusting that God will do what he's promised to do in his word, that his word will work as a hammer on hard hearts and will open up the gospel, open up the eyes of people to bring them to Christ. It is our trust in God that, that gives us the impotence to, impetus to move forward, to keep doing what he's commanded us to do, even though in our eyes we're frail, we're weak, it's impossible. So he says, stretch out your hand, the man immediately stretches out his hand, and he is healed. Do you notice Jesus' response to the Pharisees? He's angry, and he's grieved. So first, there's this righteous indignation, right? He, he has this just wrath for what's going on. He, he sees the hardness of their heart, and it angers him. When it says hardness of your heart, that word actually comes, it's porosis. It comes, it could be translated to stupidity. Okay, the obstinate stupidity of their position. That they were, they were choosing to respond in a way that was so, so evil, so wicked toward what Christ was doing. He asked them this question that's so, the answer is just obvious, right? Nobody in their right mind would not know that it's to do good. And yet they're so hard-hearted that they won't even respond. And so Christ is angry, righteously angry, and he's grieved. And when we look at the scriptures, in Jesus' life, there aren't even that many times Jesus is angry. Like, he's angry when children aren't allowed to be brought to him. He's, he's angry that they're keeping kids away, right? But he's angry when he sees the temple being used as a place for people to make money. There's not a lot of times. And here, he looks at the Pharisees. And it's almost, his anger is almost always directed toward those people who are imposing law instead of grace. Who are putting the Bible, the, the Old Testament, the Mosaic law in front of Jesus. That it's what's required. That keeping the law is what's going to get you right with God. That you need to work your way. That's what Jesus is angry about because he knows that not only does this represent what the Pharisees, the state of the Pharisees right now, their hard-heartedness, it represents what they're teaching all of Israel. That their way to God is by keeping the Pharisaical law. And it's just not. It's never going to be. And so Jesus is angry and he's grieved. He's grieved because he sees them as people. They're not just opponents. I mean, for us, we look at this story, and I don't know about you, but I think those Pharisees suck. I hate them. Right? They're terrible. I wish they would just be off the face of the planet. And yet Jesus is angry, and at the same time he's grieved. You know, it, 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 it troubles him. 
He doesn't like to see them that way because he still loves them. He has compassion on them. So verse number 6 says, The Pharisees went forth. Instead of dialoguing with Jesus, instead of asking more questions, instead of attempting to get to the bottom of this, they go forth and straightway they took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. And this in and of itself is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. That's probably a a drastic thing to say. But if you were to take this verse and say the Pharisees went somewhere and took counsel with the Herodians and you were to tell any first century Jew that this happened, they'd be like, no, it didn't. No, that, that would never happen. You don't know, the Pharisees, they're the religious, like, like they, they love the religion, they love the Bible, they love Judaism. They think that the Romans are imposing slavery on them when this is the promised land. And so they are just waiting for the Messiah to come, the, this king to come, to rescue them out of slavery and to, to make the Jews the kings as they ought to be once again. The Herodians represent Herod and the political rulers of the day. And, and so they are completely opposed to everything the Pharisees think and believe. They, they don't want the Messiah to come. They, they like their king. They want to keep their king. So the Herodians would look at them as like the, the religious nutcases, and the Pharisees would look at the Herodians and think that they're like the political sellouts, that, that they're terrible. They would hate each other. Okay? I would almost want to use the, the whole, like it, it's like Trump and Obama getting together, but it's probably worse than that. Here we have these guys getting together because they have something they hate even more than each other. What could they hate more than one another? What could a Democrat hate more than a Republican? Or vice versa. They hated Jesus. The thing that brought them together was their hatred for Christ. And this is just so weird to me. Because here you have Jesus walking around doing good to people. Healing them. Teaching them. Feeding them. Loving them. What is Jesus doing that warrants this kind of hatred? Other than the fact that he is challenging both the religious establishment and the political establishment. That that Jesus stands with John the Baptist, who spoke against Herod, and so maybe that's why the Herodians hate him, and and he stands against the religious system of the Pharisees. They hate him so much. The next six verses provide for us a a bit of a snapshot of Jesus' ministry at this time, and there are a couple reasons, I think, that Mark chooses to include it here, so we'll we'll see those in a second. Verse number 7. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came to him. It is normal for Jesus to be followed by a great crowd. That crowd was primarily from Galilee. Up to this point. And Mark here is making the point that it's not just in Galilee that people are coming from. That there are men and women coming from Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, about a two-day journey from here. 
Jerusalem would have been south of here. From Idumea, that's even south of Judah, the land that was kind of partially Jewish, and, and this is the land that Herod would have come from. From beyond Jordan, which is a place called Perea, a land called Perea, and there, uh, there were mostly Gentile cities, mostly Gentile people. And then even from Tyre and Sidon, which is, they're Gentile coastal cities known for their wickedness. And the point he's making is, here's Jesus in the heart of Galilee, and there are people coming from Jewish Jerusalem, and from partially Jewish Idumea, even further away, and from over here in well, for you, it'd be over here in Perea, and then from over here in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile places. I mean, they're coming from everywhere. And so far, Jesus' ministry has been primarily to the Jews, but we're starting to see that his ministry is expanding. That the word out is that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And so people are coming from all over the place to see him. Verse number 9, And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they throng him. For he healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Here we have the summary of the authority of Christ over both physical and spiritual evil. Jesus is able to cast out demons at command. He's able to to heal plagues and diseases and and difficulties. In fact, when it says he healed many, I think that's many of all. There's many that came and he healed them. That's kind of the idea we're getting. Jesus was just able to heal all of these diseases. He's completely authoritative over them. He points out here an interesting verse where the demons are saying that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the first time that Jesus is called the Son of God here in the book of Mark. And it really doesn't happen until Peter and then the Roman soldier, right? And so it's it's like not very often is Jesus called the Son of God in the Gospels. The first time it happens are these demons that call him the Son of God. And Jesus' response to them is, don't make me known or be silent. Stop. There are many reasons why he might have silenced them. Maybe it wasn't his time yet. Maybe it was that their testimony would be unreliable, and so it would not be good for others to hear the testimony of a demon, possessed person. And maybe it was because it's the job of humans and not demons to spread the gospel. We would probably come up with a lot of reasons. But what's interesting here is that the demons recognize the fact that the religious Pharisees are unable to even recognize as a possibility. Right? So far, it doesn't matter what Jesus does. He heals. He, he performs these unreal miracles, and they're closed to the idea that he's anything other than a fraud. And here, the demons. He is the Son of God. It's clear. And so, we have this story here. And, and I recognize, man, we, we look at stories like this, and we see they're awesome. We see they're fantastic stories. We think like, man, I wish I would have been there. That would have been so neat to see. But what does a story about a man with a withered hand have to do with me today? And so before I let you go today, we need to answer that question. And I think there are a few great lessons for us. The first one is, I asked myself the question, why was Jesus so angry? Why did he get angry here? 
so many other times bad things happen, and his response doesn't seem to be anger, and yet here it is. And we must note that his anger is not with regard to the observance of the Sabbath day. He wasn't angry that people were trying to observe the law. In fact, Jesus here was observing the Sabbath traditions. He was going to the synagogue with all of the Jews. He never told them that this was a bad idea. And so we need to recognize that Jesus was for the law. And when he asked the question, um, is it lawful to heal or to do good, it was a legitimate question. There was nothing in God's law that said that you could not heal or do good. What was, what's interesting is the Pharisees, once again, had added to God's law, and they said, well, you can heal, but only if this person's condition is fatal. Only if they're going to die if you don't do anything, then you can heal. But if this person, their condition is not fatal, it's work to heal on the Sabbath day. Now, when I say that, does that that sound kind of strange to you? Yeah? I believe that when they first came out with that law, they were concerned with the doctors and maybe the nurses or whatever, that, that they were working so hard every day of the week, and they thought, those people, they're not taking a rest day, and so we're going to put in some kind of law that's going to help them take the Sabbath day that they need to take. If it's fatal, yes, they can work, but if it's not fatal, then they should stop. And that begins, maybe, as a good idea. right? Maybe it's, it's, it's good to say, yeah, the doctors, the nurses, they need the rest. But it turns into this, you must do this or God is going to smite you. You must do this or you will not have the favor of God. You will have broken the law and, and you'll be this terrible sinner. And they've just, just twisted. You see how easy it is to twist something like that? They've missed the spirit of the law and that's to do good. And they've made it into just, just do what we say. Just, just cross off all the boxes and you'll be all set. He wasn't angry with their observance of the Sabbath, and he wasn't angry at the existence of religious authorities. He actually didn't have a problem that there were such people as Pharisees who were teaching and people would look up to and all those things. That wasn't the problem. The problem is the system that they were teaching. The system of legalism that brought only bondage and death. He was enraged that the law of God had been distorted to the point that people were using the law to justify their evil. That's exactly what's happening here, and it happens elsewhere in Scripture with these same guys. They use the law to justify evil. We need to be really careful in our use of God's word, in our use of the law. We don't use it to hurt people. We don't use it to to justify ourselves. We try to to get the spirit of the law. What is God really teaching? How does it fall in line with love God and love your neighbor? Because everything points to that, right? Right? And then we use the law for good. I think ultimately, Jesus hated the pride that lay at the bottom of the whole thing. It was the pride of the Pharisees that blinded them. It was their need to be right in their own eyes. It was their unwillingness to admit that anything that they were teaching was wrong. It was their unwillingness to admit that there was a greater authority there than themselves. They had this pride. And because of their pride, they would not at even, even give Jesus the chance to show him, them who he was. And so Jesus hated it. His anger was kindled because his law was being distorted in a way that hurt his people. 
things like this, when we are using God's law the wrong way, when we're seeing ourselves as as needing to merit God's favor in some way, it leads to self-righteousness, it leads to judgmentalism, to joylessness, to ingratitude, to depression. I mean, it leads to everything because you, you can't, you can't stay in a good spot when you're the one that has to keep you there, right? You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. And so if the law of God becomes this bar we're, we're trying to, to figure ourselves out by to see if we're righteous or not, then every single time we fall short of it. It's not what it's for, but the law is good. It is made for our good because it shows us our need, it shows us the character of God, and then it leads us to him. And so Jesus is angry when his law is distorted. What here do you think Jesus is trying to teach us? We said at the beginning that that he did this for a purpose, right? He was teaching the people there a lesson, and he's teaching us a lesson too, at least one, I think two. And the first one is that disciples of Christ ought to be involved in the business of doing good. Now, when you look at this text, what you notice is Jesus asks this question, should I do good or evil? The assumption is, if Jesus could heal the man and chose not to heal the man, it would be evil to choose that, correct? So if you have the opportunity to do good, And then you choose not to do good, but you are choosing not just to be hands-off, not just to do nothing. You're choosing to do evil. And so here Jesus chooses to do good. He sees suffering, and he's able to fix it, and so he takes the steps necessary to fix it. The disciples of Jesus ought to do the same. We ought to be looking for opportunities to do good. And it means when we have those opportunities and we just brush them aside, that's evil. Isn't that almost exactly what James said in James 4.17? Therefore, to him that knows to do good, does it not? To him it is sin. It's sinful for you to see something good that needs to be done and to neglect it, to refuse to do it. Jesus, I, I know as we look at this story, we see the character of Christ. We see some, some really big things that Jesus is teaching us. But he's also this awesome example for us of doing good to people, of seeing people and being compassionate toward them. And I'm telling you, if every single one of us in this room decided that this week we would try to do something good for people, what kind of impact do you think that would have? Find somebody that you can do good to and do it. Just do it. I guarantee that that they'd be more open to what you have to say in the future. It really would be a good example of what Christianity is supposed to be about, showing love to our neighbor. You have an opportunity to do good. Just look for them and do them. The second thing that I think we learned from the story is that Jesus is grieved by the hardness of our hearts. He's angry and he's grieved as he sees our hearts being presented such amazing grace and pushing it away for something so so much lesser than. Such little value. And yet we choose that over and over. 
For the Pharisees, they assumed the posture of self-righteousness. Their pride blinded them. And it led to distorting God's word and God's law to justify themselves. And as much as it's easy for us to see them doing it, it's much more difficult to see how it's happening in our own lives. But the great thing about Scripture is that it reveals the heart of mankind. And one of the things we see when we see the heart of mankind is that it's not so unique. It's not that one person is super, super evil, and one person is just just an angel, a saint. In the secular culture, we wants to look at people and, and label them that way and say most people are generally good and, and not so. And there's people like Hitler that are just super evil, and then there's people like Oprah that are like saints. But that's actually not the condition of the human heart. Some of our sins are more, more overt, but sins of pride can be manifested in our desire to do good and have people see it. And really, the Pharisees, they wanted everybody to see how awesome they were. So they were willing to sacrifice and to do good and to give and to pray and to do all of these things. And from the outside, it looked so good. On the inside, they were so evil. Because our hearts are desperately wicked. They're not so different from us. And so, this, this, uh, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of purpose. It's not something I can talk you into. I'm not even going to try. But what I'm going to tell you is that one of the things I think that the church, that the, that the believers are lacking in, is an awareness of their own sin. And then taking that seriously. Do you ever think about the sin in your heart? Do you ever ask God to reveal your sin to you like David did? To reveal your heart? How much do we reflect on ourselves and how much do we instead spend our time just thinking about how good we are? I know we don't think it like that, but we just assume it's all okay. How much better it would be if we would get into God's word and just beg for the Spirit to show us our need and show us our sin and show us the pride that's blinding us to our sin. I can guarantee that those Pharisees die, they go to eternity and hell without Christ. And they look back on their life now having seen, because we know someday they'll see the glory of God, and they look at themselves and say, how could I have been so blind? And just wishing they could have a chance to see, a chance to change, a chance to reflect, and, and to stop just pushing their will forward and saying, God, what is truth? And we must do that in ourselves. God, I'm going to put myself aside and say, God, what is truth in my life? What do I need to work on? What do I need to change? What are you trying to reveal to me that will make me a better follower of Christ? Or maybe it's, what are you revealing to me that, that, will, that will lead me to following Christ in the first place? Jesus is not apathetic toward the state of our hearts. He is concerned. We ought to be concerned as well. He is not content to allow obstinate stupidity to exist unchecked. He wants us to check it. Much of this world is convinced of a caricature of Christ. When they think of Christ, they think of either some super religious guy or some hippie kind of guy or, or whatever it is. And Christ is, he really is very divisive in this world. But 
I think as you read this story and the stories we've seen already, Jesus being a friend of sinners, Jesus hearing the healing the paralyzed man, and then hear him having compassion on this man with the withered hand. If you, if you were to really meet Jesus as he's presented in Scripture, he would be beautiful. He'd be attractive. He is. And what his people need to do is to be better ambassadors of Christ. How do we show the world that is dying the love that our Savior showed? I'll never be perfectly, I'll never be like he did. But we are supposed to be representing him, his disciples. And so how do we do a better job of being loving and truthful? Of standing firm for what the word of God says, not backing down from truth, never backing down from truth, but then also loving people, being concerned and grieved for their, about their sinfulness, not because it's affecting us, because of how it affects them. If people could see the real Jesus, I think they'd be drawn to him. It's funny, Pastor mentioned Andy Stanley this morning and how, how he has this desire to see people come to Christ, but unfortunately, the desire has led him to uh, neglecting portions of the Old Testament or the Old Testament as a whole because it doesn't represent the Jesus that people will choose, that people will be drawn to, that they'll like. And so if we want to see people saved, we need to give Jesus a makeover and then present him in a good 21st century light. Can I tell you something? This Jesus is attractive. And it's the Jesus of the Old Testament. And it's the Jesus of the New Testament. It, it is the only Jesus. And it is our job just to try to be like him and to show his love. And if we do that, sinners, the Gentiles, the super-religious from Jerusalem, they're all coming to flock to see this Jesus. Because he's a friend of sinners. And he's a friend of the religious who will repent. Right? And so let us, as his people, just try to be what we say we are, disciples of Christ. Let's pray.